Hi, welcome to Conversations with Sammy. I am your host, and I'm so glad you're here. I believe in the miraculous impact of a powerful storytelling. And right here is where I invite everyday people like you and I to share their real, raw, and unedited journeys. In our conversations, we express our feelings, we celebrate our struggles, we share our visions, and together we aim to live a more fulfilling life. In this conversation, I speak with Cam Knight. Cam has visited nearly 100 countries in his six years of backpacking around the world. Cam shares his transformational healing experiences as he went from country to country, exploring the world as one vast home, tapping into the deepest parts of himself. He shares his experience of healing with ayahuasca and other plant medicine from different parts of the world. He talks about the difference a clean diet made to his mental, spiritual, and emotional health, and what he learned about himself and his place in the world through his travels. Enjoy. Hey, thank you, Cam, for uh, for joining me today on this um, conversation on my podcast. I was really looking forward to share your journey with with my listeners, as I as I find it so inspiring and um, motivating as well. So, thank you for being here. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here, and in many ways, it's very overdue. Yeah, very overdue. But hey, time comes as we least expected, I suppose. <laughs> um, Cam, I wanna. I want to tell a little bit to my listeners how I met you. And I was just pondering upon you joined me on this call. It's probably been a little bit over three years that I've known you. And so actually about three years ago, around this time in the fall, I was listening to a podcast, to an episode. And there was this man who uh, I remember is a writer and meditator himself. I believe his name is Young Pueblo. Um, and he was sharing his experience from this 10 days of silent meditation he went on. And as I was listening to the episode, I immediately Googled the Vipassana silent meditation centers in Illinois. And there it was. And literally after I finished the episode, that day I signed up for this course, not really knowing what it is, except that I will be meditating for 10 hours a day, 10 days in a row. And something magical, amazing will be revealed. And so I signed up. Um, it was probably like two and a half months in advance. And then um, I began looking for the ride. I needed a ride. So there's this ride share program. So I find a guy who said, sure, I have a car. I have, I have plenty of room. Uh, meet me this morning at the cafe and we'll roll. And I don't think I even realized that there's going to be passengers. And so as I'm sitting with uh, this guy, his name is Shimon, you walk in with, with a woman. And turns out four of us are going to go to that center in, in one ride. And so it was myself. Shimon was from Israel or is from Israel. You're from India. Rana from Saudi Arabia. And I'm from Lithuania. Originally, we're all from those places in the world. And I was just thinking, how amazing is this? Like four people meet on their destiny and their path and we're all going to this experience not really knowing what it will bring to us because we're truly seeking to find answer and um, answers and to to better ourselves in any way that we seek to 
And so we got to know one another a bit. I think it was about two hour ride. And then we go to the center. We are then separated men and women. And I don't really see you much and Shimon, and we don't speak for the 10 days that we're in that facility. And then after the 10 days of the amazing experience, we again see one another as like completely new people. We jump in a car to go back to Chicago and then we talk some more. And I remember particularly being so intrigued and fascinated with your story because for you, you were just recently back from your travels around the world and we're diving into this in this conversation. And I was so intrigued that you backpacked for, for several years around the world. You know, you're writing books as an author. You make a living that way. And I was just like, man, this guy, wow, I want to get to know you. And so I think immediately we exchanged numbers. I reached out to you shortly after. And so that's when our friendship really began, when we met in the when that little place of, of sushi we used to go to and, and just talk about life and our experiences. And you were really one of the first people, Cam, um, that I found very, very different than everyone else around me at the time. Um, I was not yet sober. I was thinking about changing my ways, wasn't really sure which direction to go. Um, and so you were a, a huge inspiration by, by what you shared so openly with me. And then another thing, not really knowing, we end up being in this, um, not really knowing that we both have signed up. We then also um, went through this self-development in social emotional a life coaching program, which was also another level to, to, to our friendship and just in our lives. It was, it was a wonderful journey. So I feel like I've I've only known you for for a short while, but it's like we've been we've been through some things, and I'm so grateful to have you as a friend. Even though you've moved to a different state, we're still in touch. And I decided, you know, I really I want you on 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 my podcast, and for you to tell a little bit more about your experience as um, as a man, as a traveler, as a writer, and really anything else that will unfold. And I want to start where, what was the tipping point for you, Cam, um, when, you dis- when you lived this life that you didn't really want to live anymore and you were seeking answers just like I was? What was the tipping point for you when you said, I need to do something, I can't stand this anymore? Um, so let's start at, Maybe where were you before that tipping point, and then uh, we'll dive into your journey. Yeah, thank you, Sammy. That was a fantastic introduction, and it really brought back a lot of memories from several years ago of how we met and how our relationship progressed, especially that moment in Vipassana where it was really almost like the world wanted us to meet because... Mm -hmm. In a way, we have a similar beginning and a similar starting, but I was just a few steps ahead of you, and I think you were really fascinated by that, and I think um, it really helped kind of accelerate things that you were doing <clears throat> and trying to move forward with, and the coincidental thing was we happened to be signed up to the same emotional, social-emotional intelligence program in the city of Chicago, so the coincidence is, I mean, it was just too coincidental. 
But yeah, in terms of the tipping point, you know, my journey has been a very long journey of healing and growth and getting over a lot of pain and things that have happened in the past. But I would say the real tipping point, so there wasn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is it wasn't the big tipping point for me. It it was a very slow, gradual process for me where I just kind of took things one day at a time. And I said, hmm, let me go here or let me try that or I'm tired of this and I'm going to move in this direction. But it really started um, in my, I would say, early 20s. After graduating college, I got into the corporate world. And I remember growing up thinking that, you know, all the problems I had would all resolve itself once I finished school and got a good job and started making money. And that was more or less pretty much the story that people have been telling me. You got to work hard and then go to a good school and then get into a good um, college and then and and get a good job. And I did that. But once I got the job, I I felt like I don't want to say I was lied to, but it wasn't what I thought it would be. And my life didn't improve and things weren't just good. And I was around people <clears throat> who like going out, they like partying, so they were into the things that come with that, such as drinking and the drugs. And I was around an environment that I just that just wasn't fulfilling for me. And I remember prior to that, when I was in high school and college, I was also in the same situation where I was around people that just wasn't kind of fulfilling for me. Like they were into what the media was saying was cool or trying to be popular or all the things that have us chasing material things. And it just wasn't great. And then when I'm an adult, I'm in around the same environment. And so the tipping point was I decided that I was not going to start doing things on my own. I wasn't going to rely on my friends to do the things that I wanted to do. I wasn't going to rely on having a group with me because I couldn't find that group to take this journey. And so I started traveling by myself. And it was one of the toughest things I've ever done is, you know, like if no one's ever really gone out and ate by themselves or done something on their own, traveling can be a big hurdle. And once I started doing that, it really started freeing me from this life that I was attached to or this programming that I was attached to. And from there, it just kind of escalated to where I ended up taking a trip around the world, was traveling for six years and nearly 100 countries. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I love how you mentioned, you know, you thought getting getting that degree, getting that job and making money, it's pretty much what's gonna just solve all the problems. And that was really exactly what I was thinking, if I could just get that money intake and, and, and just, I also also had this idea of being, you know, known and famous. Yeah, That was just the, the glory I was seeking. And again, it's, it's a much brainwashed by media, Hollywood, the, the old uh, celebrity lifestyles. And, um, um, Fortunately and unfortunately for me, I, I really seek that without really knowing why I do. I just um, had this belief that that's just going to be my happiness and that's what I will do. And I'm so glad to find out that that's 
for me personally, it's not even close to what I really want in life. Um, Cam, what was the very first country you embarked and yeah, what was the first step for you in, in the travel journey? Yeah, so I'll kind of preface the first step. It was, I remember exactly, it was December 7th, 2011, when I touched my first country of this epic journey, and it was the country of Colombia. And I remember prior to that, you know, I was in another job, I was an accountant, and my job and my boss and I weren't really getting along at the time. And of course, during my stint in the corporate world, I always thought the issues were my boss or the environment or the people or the corporate politics. But really, it's them from all the stuff that all the inner stuff that I needed to work through. And more or less, I wasn't getting along with them. And I decided that it would be better if I left um, to another job. And I had... um, I was thinking that it would be good for me to travel for a few months just so I can kind of become more relaxed. So when I go to my another job, my next job, I can perform better and not be where I was at. And so I thought, hey, you know, you never get so much time to travel when you're working. So before I find another job, I'll just take two months off and travel. Well, two months turned into six months, and then six months turned into a year, and then a year turned into a year and a half. And then at the year and a half mark, I was like, okay, no more end dates. I'm just going to go for as long as I can go and as long as I want to go. Though, when I got to the first country, prior to that, I was thinking to myself, you know, once I get there, everything will be okay. You know, everything will be better. I'll, I won't be working, and I could enjoy myself. And I remember the morning I got to Colombia, I was at a hostel. And, you know, hostels are environments where a lot of different travelers from all over the world stay and gather and they tend to hang out and make really fast connections. So I ended up grabbing, going for lunch with this one guy who was from Canada. And I was telling him my experience of like, oh, you know, like I thought I would start feeling better now that. I don't have work and I can, I'm in a whole different continent and life should be better, but I feel like really crappy still. And he told me something that I'd never heard before prior to that, because it's not something that was part of conversation in the States, especially through mainstream media or any of the people that I knew. And he was saying, you know, back in the Western world, such as where you're from, which was the U.S. and where he's from, which is Canada. He's like, we've been conditioned to kind of think that our happiness and our our well-being is really dependent on all these material things and material successes and our job and our title and money. And then we go and chase it. But there is this key component that we're all missing, which is physical contact, like human contact. And he was specifically talking about touching. Um, like hugs and and camaraderie and, and things of that nature. And it was so foreign. I had never heard it before. But I was open to the idea because I was just there and frustrated. He's like, you know, there's a movement going on where people are becoming more aware of the need for more human interaction. and But more importantly, the, the physical component of it as we're mammals. 
And and when we don't get it, it manifests. It manifests in all sorts of disorders and issues such as depression and anxiety and all sorts of other mental and emotional ways. And in in a lot of ways, it kind of made sense. I was like, whoa, this is this is kind of mind blowing. I never heard of it before. And it was really cool for the next like week or two, we kind of became friends. We hung out a lot. We chatted, we interacted. I talked about my stuff and my past and he talked about his stuff and his past. And it really kind of shifted my mindset and gear of how I was going to travel. Instead of traveling to do things and see things, I was also going to add in this component of interacting and engaging with people. And at the time, I was a very socially anxious, introverted person. And people, it didn't even really make sense to me, like why people came together and gathered and just talked. Like it was such a foreign concept because of the way I was brought up. But I decided to shift that and really told, I forced myself to stay in more hostels and stay in dormitories. So I was forced to meet people and inter interact with them. And through that experience, it really kind of opened me to a level of humanity that I hadn't really known or experienced, but was almost conditioned to think that there was no value there. And that really began in Colombia. But what's also really interesting about that is like in Colombia, I had met another woman who is Colombian and she had started a finca and I was telling her about my struggles there as well. And she was the first person who told me about Vipassana. She's like, you know, you should try this Vipassana thing, the silent meditation. And she told me how, you know, everything is set up. They give you your food. You don't have to pay for anything. And it really helps people get, you know, um, it's, it's really healing for a lot of people. And what's interesting is throughout my journey, I was hearing about it more and more from different people in different countries and surprisingly in different continents. That's how far Vipassana has spread. So, you know, my first journey, my first country really set the stage for what the rest of my travels is going to be like. Wow. So, so powerful. I, I relate on so many levels and, um, you know, like I said, I'm going to repeat myself, you were one of the first people I've met that just had a completely different style, different vibe from you. The simplicity of your life at worst was triggering to me. I'm like, how is this dude just, you know, has these few things and he moves around and he likes these, you interact a lot, you you travel and just make things work. And I'm here thinking, I'm like busting my ass off to have all these things that I don't really need. And I was just blown away the more I got to know you, how simple life really is. And that's all we need. And, you know, the connection with people is the key, you know, being mammals and needing the touch and, and the eye contact. And this is the concept that I learned in that uh, program we were both in, social emotional intelligence. That was my biggest, uh, one of the bigger breakthroughs. And really, you know, the life that I live here in the West, it, it's just shifting, shifting drastically in the past three years. And I love how simple um, it, it's becoming for me just because my perception is shifting and I no longer need 
so many things that I thought I'd do. You know, the money isn't my priority. It's it's the people. It's the relationship with self, um, liking myself for who I am, if, if anything. Yeah, I really want to riff on what you said because prior to starting that journey, my mindset, and it's really weird because this is where what it was at. It was my worth and value was very much dependent on the amount of money in my bank account, the kind of car I drove, the place that I lived in, the job that I, the job, not only the type of job, but the title. I really felt that in my core that that was a very core driver of not only just my happiness, but what it took for me to be worthy of somebody else's time. And I can't say what it was that created that belief. I think there was a lot of things, but that was like the core belief that I had. And when I was in the States and I kind of wasn't, you know, happy and wasn't getting fulfilled by conversations and interactions and wasn't getting the response that I was hoping for from people, my mind always averted to, oh, it's because I don't have enough this or it's because I don't have that, or it's because I am dressed this way and I, did, I need to buy better clothes, or things of that nature. It, was, it always went to that. And I always felt this need to do better and excel more so I can afford these things just to get this human connection and content that I was so desperately yearning as a human from other people. But then when I started traveling, it was in in a way, really great because I could only bring so many things with me. So at first I had this big giant backpack and a big suitcase filled with like a bunch of shoes and all these things that I thought I absolutely needed. And the more I traveled, the more those things became just a big weight on my shoulders. Because when you're traveling, you have to carry these around. And if you're waiting at a bus stop, if you're waiting for a bus to go from one city to another, and you've got this big bag on your shoulder and then another one on your arm, you start to get tired fast. So slowly I started letting things go. I started like, I didn't really need to have four pairs of shoes on my trip. And eventually that turned into one pair of shoe and one slipper. You know, I didn't need to have all these different types of pants. And eventually it turned into like, one pair of jeans and a couple of pants that were convertible into shorts. And I didn't need to have all these different shirts and all sorts of things that I was like lugging around. And the more I let go, the lighter I felt both physically and just um, mentally and emotionally because my mind wasn't focused on all these things and my mind became free to do uh, other things like interact with people and just enjoy the different experiences that were afforded to me by being in all these exotic places. And and there was a certain point, I, I even remember, I think it was the third country. So I went from Colombia, then to Panama, and then to Nicaragua. And I was talking, interacting with people, having a good time, meeting, dating. And none of it involved any sort of money or any sort of showing of status like none of it like I could meet uh, locals and they and when they when I would talk to them they would have a smile on their face and when I would meet other travelers I can get into these really deep discussions and have these like really cool um, 
deep experiences and moments with them because you know we would only see each other for a few hours to a few days and it's kind of weird when you know someone is only going to be around for a short time our unconscious allows us to really go deep into those experiences and i started to see realize i'm like wow like you don't really need anything all you really need is some clothes on your back and some shoes and toiletries and that's it. And that's pretty much what I lived on for six years, if you can imagine. And when I came back, I really tried hard to make sure that I didn't get sucked back into the old way of being. And I lived a very minimal lifestyle. And I'm really happy to say I still do in many ways. I mean, I still have more things than before. I, when, I have more things now than when I was traveling. But it's still very minimal and not like what many of us are conditioned to think we need and how I used to be prior to me going on my journey. Yeah, very true. Um, very true in the way that, you know, the simplicity of life, again, I keep saying the simplicity of life because to me it's just such a fascinating fact now that I got a grasp and taste of it myself. And I remember, you know, um, one of my friends, uh, some of my friends, they, they travel a lot and, and some of them like to go to hotels and you pay a lot of money where they stay. There's got to be a pool and breakfast included and blah, blah, blah. And to me, it's like, oh, my goodness, you're missing out on the real deal. You know, I've, I've never backpacked like you did myself. But um, as much as I travel, I literally prefer backpack on my back, comfortable shoes and just the experience of oh, let's, let's see where I could find um, a bed for, for tonight or maybe meet some locals. Now, that's the real experience. And I think we miss out so much from the Western world of, of, of being afraid of the locals. Like, they, they're yeah. the real people. You know, if we just go into hotels and touristy places, we're only seeing people like, right. like we are from, you know, from, from our circle. And we're missing out on that realness. And again, this this kind of instilled limiting belief that it's dangerous out there that you need to stick with people you know and you know go to tourists because local poverty raping murder of course all kind of things goes on but again is this fear real um so i love how how you just went and uh, and explored for for so long and you know you told me so many stories and i'd love you to share some of them um right now with me from your travels I love when you talked about really to, through traveling, you learned so much rather than just reading books or, or watching documentaries. You experienced it as you traveled, as you met people, like the differences, the, the systematic ways of um, everything, inequality and, and, and not so good things and good things. Um, um, can you share some of most memorable moments of, when things just come together for you, like, oh my gosh, that's why, you know, the world is this way or, or, or something that what you learn here in, in States was completely shattered because it, it wasn't truth. Like this kind of feeling of relief, like, wow, I don't have to live this way. Yeah. I mean, there were so many learnings and there are so many aha moments. I mean, uh, we could talk for weeks about it, but Probably, I'll, I'll yeah. talk about some of the, more um more what's the word 
some of the more eye-opening ones for me. And they happened kind of early on in the journey. First off, when I first started traveling, I kind of had the mindset that you're kind of speaking of, that the world is a dangerous place and everyone is out to get you. And, and really the conditioning in the States was, you know, the States is the only industrialized place and everywhere else you go, it's going to be dangerous and you have to be really careful. And that wasn't the case at all. <clears throat> but it, did, it took me a few countries to really get to understanding that. And it really happened when I was in Nicaragua. So as I mentioned, when I was in Colombia, two countries prior, the first country in my journey, I had met a guy, I had met a guy named John who kind of told me about the importance of connections and interactions and the human bonding. And so that's what I tried to do as I was traveling. Then when I got to Nicaragua, I was in one town and I wanted to save money. So I got this hostel. It was really cheap. It was like $5 a night. And it was a new hostel, but so really I was the only person there. Then the next day there was this woman that comes in to look at it and she decides to stay. It was a German woman, only 20 years old, traveling on her own. And this is one of those things I talk about, like when you're when you're two strangers from two different land, in a strange land, you are almost like there's a connection or a bond there and you can have deeper interactions. And so we became friends and we started exploring Nicaragua together. We actually traveled through through and through different cities together for like a period of a good week to two weeks. And I just watched her, how she planned for things and how she looked at bus schedules and how we would go to what, this one bus stop to take a bus to the next city. And from there, how we would find um, how we would go from the bus stop to the main town and how we'd find a place to stay and the interactions that we had and how to her it didn't phase her at all. Like for me, it was a bit nerve-wracking. Like when I would go from city to city or country to country, I'd always make sure prior to meeting her that I was with somebody else. But with her, it was just like, it was just so normal. And 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 mind you, she was younger, she was a woman, and she was on her own. And I'm like, something is not right here. Like, this either should not be possible or something in my head of how things work is very, very wrong. And that was one of the really most, one of the most important points in my journey because that was when I first started to realize, wow, people outside of the U.S. and people in a strange land aren't dangerous and nobody's going to bother you. Sure, you may look a little different and you're going to get eyes on you because you look different, but it's not a threatening look unless you come from that mindset. If you come from the mindset that um, you go to another place, it's dangerous. And just from the two weeks we spent together, it really like opened my, not just mine, but a lot of resistance to just let go and be able to explore more, especially on my own. And after we parted ways, that's kind of what I started doing more. I started traveling more and doing things more locally as opposed to having the hostel set up all my transfers for me. I would say, no, I'm going to take the bus. The bus will be cheaper. I'll get to hang out with the 
the locals and see how they really do things and have those interactions. So that was really a mind-blowing experience. But another mind-blowing experience for me was it happened not just at one specific point, but all these different experiences going from one country to another and then one continent to another and interacting with people and starting to just like realize that in so many ways, we're all the same. You know, I've in my journey, I've had the pleasure to interact with people of indigenous cultures, whether it was in the Amazon or in the or in Africa or even in the jungles of Asia. Interact with people who come from the Western world, who come from second world countries, who come from different religions, different backgrounds, different mindsets, people who are refugees from a country that isn't doing well, but in a different land where they're a stranger. And I started to realize that like, wow, like we literally are all the same. You know, the media likes to paint a picture that people from here are evil and people from here are like that. But we're not. Like if you cut us, we bleed. If we lose someone, it hurts. If we do something too much, it's not good. If we don't do something enough, it doesn't stick. And we're all struggling with the same things. But more importantly, what it did was it opened my belief about myself and my place in the world. Because when I was growing up, and this is weird that I used to even think this, I used to actually think that this, the world was this big, happy community where everybody was friends and everybody helped each other, but I wasn't part of it. And I was different and everybody knew it. And above all, that I knew it as well. And because I was different, I could never really be part of the community. And as a result, I could. there was a level of success and enjoyment in life that I could never have access to. It was this very limiting belief that I had. And much of my um, youth and young adult life, I was trying really hard to show that I was worthy enough to be part of it. That's why I was working hard to get good grades and get a good job and make good money to be like, I want to enter this thing. But through my travels, I realized that there isn't this big, huge community where everyone's helping each other and everyone's friends. Like we're all in many ways alone and on our own doing what we can or what we think we need to, to really fit in and to really make it and survive in the world. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that was a huge opening. But it took mm -hmm. traveling through several, like, tens of countries in many continents to kind of really get that picture. Oh, it makes total sense. And I really, I think a lot of us live in a way um, that think we, this is what we have to do. Like I know myself, I still do many, many things that I believe this is how it should be. And, and I want to be part of here and part of here. And all of these unconscious beliefs are playing in, a, in the background. But to me, it's, it's such a gift when I catch them and I think like, wait a minute, I don't really like doing it. I don't really like dressing this way. Or like, I don't really, really like this food anymore. Why am I, you know, it's just starting to notice the things I do. And then also notice asking myself, do I like it? And Another thing I want to go into, Cam, um, you've met probably so many great 
um, spiritual teachers and, and healers um, throughout the, the years of your journey. And also, I want to mention that you were one of the first people whom I spoke to and I heard news about the way people eat. And I watched you, how you eat and how differently you eat and how you talk about food. And, and I was like, where, where are you getting this stuff? Like, what are you? And it seems like you learn a lot about the ways of eating and the food production and the whole industry through your travels. So talk a little bit about that because that changed for you drastically too. I mean, you, your diet was completely different. Yeah. And food is uh, another big topic that I can talk about for a really long time. And it was for me, the food started really before my travels and it started because I have a very, high sensitivity or reaction to processed foods. I don't know what exactly is in, in the food, whether, whether it's the e-chemicals, the food additives, the colorings, or the preservatives, but eating anything that's not whole and organic is like a hard drug to me. So a quarter of a can of cola would keep me up all night, or eating a McDonald's sandwich would spin my thoughts into oblivion. And this is really what started a lot of my issues because children's food, especially in the States, is very much processed with all the Twinkies and Hohen Hoes and all the hundred varieties of chips and slushies and all that. Now imagine giving a child with this kind of a sensitivity, essentially you're giving the child a hard drug day in and day out, week after week, month after month, and year after year. So by the time I was an adult, I was pretty intense, pretty hyper, pretty anxious. And I would almost, I, I would go as far as to say I was like almost on the brink of insanity because of what food was doing to me. And this is really a big part of what created the pain and challenge and struggle in my life that got me first into personal development and then into other parts of healing and what led me on this journey. And what I noticed is when I left the States and the foods that I was eating abroad, I didn't have as much sensitivity or reaction to, if at all. And what I noticed is that the food tasted very different. Like food here can taste pretty good, but over there it has this taste of like something natural good. Like I could have a chicken here, but a chicken over there, it just felt like I was eating something else or almost like I was, I was like eating chicken for the first time. And I remember I didn't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables in the States because they tasted really bad. But when I'd have it out there, they tasted amazing. Like I have wicked flashbacks of the strawberries I had in Colombia one day in, um, in, in a square in Medellin. I remember when I was in Nicaragua and there was this uh, mango stand and they had these mangoes and it was so good. It was like me and the couple of people I was with, we were like talking about it as if it was an addiction. And my favorite banana was in Suriname. I had, you know, my favorite apple, a pineapple I can still remember was in, um, I think it was in Costa Rica, like pretty much fresh off the tree. And I'm like, wow, why doesn't food or fruits taste like that back in the States? 
And why don't other types of foods like the meats and the beef taste like that? And what I noticed more is that I didn't have that intense reaction. Now, I still had a bit of a reaction because when they do prepare the food over in, um, you know, outside of the States, they tend to use a lot of ingredients from the States, such as the different sauces. It might be by companies such as Nestle or Nestle's, I think, from Europe, but other big name companies that do process it. So it still gets in there. But if you just took it the raw stuff, I mean, it was just amazing. And it wasn't just in one country. It was like country after country. Like I could almost eat like a king, the quality in terms of quality for a very low price. And it started to help me realize that much of my challenges wasn't from I thought there was something wrong with me and things like that. It was really stemming from the foods that I was eating. So over the years, I started cutting out different foods. Um, first fast food, then any food from chain restaurants, then, you know, processed foods. And to the point now where I pretty much am a vegan, gluten-free, eat only organic. And even very recently, I've cut out pretty much all salt from my diet. And this is a very interesting thing when I tell people this, because it's not that I don't add salt to already salted food. I don't have any salt, meaning, and this is actually very hard to do. What that means is I don't eat out because everything, all the food out has, is very salted. And I don't eat anything prepackaged because there's a high contents of sodium. So a lot of what I make is a lot of uh, fresh vegetables, fruits, raw nuts, as well as lentils and rice. And in the beginning, it was like very challenging because when you don't have salt, things taste bad and almost gross. But after a while, your, your, your taste buds adjust. And I, they started adjusting to no salt, and I could finally actually start tasting food. And when I tell people, they don't really get what I'm saying because I'm like, yeah, you know, I taste food as well. I can taste the lentils or I can taste the fruit. I'm like, no, you taste the salt. More, almost all the foods we're eating nowadays, we're tasting salt in one degree or another or sugars or fats. But when you take the salt away, it's a whole different taste and experience that I'm so glad I had this in many ways, the sensitivity so I could remove all these things and really enjoy the flavor of food the way it's meant to be. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really blown away you took this ingredient out of your diet. That's, that's huge and good for you. And, you know, it takes me back when, um, when we used to meet and, you know, for lunch and conversations, you always brought your own water. And I thought, what a weirdo, like, it's the same water, like, what's your problem? But, you know, you kept saying that, well, you know, just gently kind of explaining that there is these things and it makes you sleepy. And I was like, makes you sleepy. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, recently this year, I, I experienced the same thing because you introduced me to this filter that is called zero filter. I've never heard about it before until I met you. And I've been using it ever since for, for several, for several years now. And after drinking that water all the time, I too take my <laughs> bottle everywhere. And now I am that weirdo that shows up with my bottle at the freaking restaurant because you know what happened, Cam. I had water from the tap and I just got 
fog over my brain and my eyes and I just I was just so sleepy and androgy I was like what the hell and then I'm like <laughs> oh my god can is right there's water yeah man, sucks <laughs> yeah I get, so, and this was this is yeah, something I learned through was, my travels like as well so I had mentioned I had the sensitivity to food and I have sensitivity really to chemicals in things especially in water and our water pretty much all around the world is treated with various ways. One is necessary because we need to clean the water, but others is questionable. And I remember prior to leaving on my journey, I would always be tired. And as you had mentioned, brain fog and a lot of times like really lethargic and I didn't know what was going on. For a long time, I was convinced that it was chronic fatigue syndrome. It's, I don't know if people have heard of it, but it's more or less like where you're just chronically fatigued. It feels like you're just like gassed out. And I experienced this a lot. So I'd have to, you know, it, it, was a, it was a lot of challenge dealing with it. And then when I was traveling, I noticed the, the chronic fatigue as well, especially when I would drink the tap water or the local water. So I really tried to make sure I just drink bottled water. And then when I went to Australia, Australia is a Western country, very industrialized. And so there's no need to drink bottled water. Tap water is fine. But when I would drink a tap water, it, the sensitivity this, of me getting tired was even more. Like it was, it was really rough. I remember I stayed with a friend I had met several years earlier in another country who lived in Australia. So I was staying with him. And he was angry at me at how, like, I didn't want to do anything. And he was excited to have me uh, visit him and stay at his place. And he was setting up all these activities. And I was just like, I was pretty much, um, I was pretty much like almost frozen, not able to do things. And then I went to another city in Australia and I was telling this guy about it. He's like, oh, yeah, it's a fluoride in water. He's like, Australia is known to have one of the highest contents of fluoride, and fluoride is known to really make people tired, especially people who have a sensitivity to it. I'm like, no way, that's got to be it. So then I stopped drinking tap water in Australia and, I, and only started drinking bottled water, but I only like drank the quality bottled water that would come from like another country. And I noticed that I wasn't as exhausted anymore. And... Um, as I would travel to other places and drink tap water, I noticed the fatigue, but then when I just took the bottle water, it wasn't there. So I realized like I really have to be cautious of the water I put in my body. And when I returned to the States, I was do doing a search for filters that would remove all these different things. And then I found zero water which is the only filter that filters all non-inorganic compounds. And so there's no metals, there's no elements, no nothing. And so when you drink the water, one, it tastes really good, and two, you're not getting tired or having all sorts of other issues come, health issues come up, like what you and I experience. And I personally believe that more people have this, experience this, but they don't realize it because they're taking so many stimulants during the day to keep them awake. You know, they have the energy drinks and the coffee and all sorts of other stuff that they're using to, to stimulate themselves or to be more alert during the day. Um, but when I cut, uh, when I became very specific on the type of water I drank, 
I realized, I started to notice that I didn't need any stimulants. I don't drink coffee. I don't take Red Bull. I don't take energy drinks. I don't take any of the stuff that is known to help you get your, your day started because I don't need to, because I'm not, I'm not drinking something that's bringing me down. So I need to reverse it with something else. And again, it, it opened my eyes through this journey of traveling, um, talking to different people and sharing my experience and them saying, oh, it's probably this or it's probably that, to realizing, wow, it's like water can create um, chronic fatigue in certain types of people if they're not careful. Yes, and water is the one you know, ingredient yeah. that we use all day, every day. It's, it, we're 70% water, so it's such a crucial thing to have as clear as possible. Yeah, but I want people to realize, really especially are. in the States, um, that just because you get bottled water doesn't mean you're getting good water. Because nowadays, all these um, big corporations like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, they have really, you know, uh, put their hand into the uh, bottled water market. And they're putting out bottled water where the packaging makes it seem like it's a great and healthy water, but it's not. What they've done is pretty much taken normal tap water filtered it and then they add chemicals to what they say is electrolytes for flavor and sure we do need electrolytes after you filter the water because uh, completely distilled water doesn't taste the best though it's really questionable what they're adding because i have the same sensitivity to their water as i would like a can of coke like it really jazzes me up and it really riles up my thoughts and it really tightens my muscles. So I don't know what they're putting in there and in their labels with water, all you can see is electrolytes in the ingredients and you can get away without having to go into the details. So nowadays, if I'm going to buy bottled water, I only buy a bottle of water that says 100% spring water. That means it comes from a spring and hopefully they haven't done anything to with it. But if it doesn't say 100% spring water, you can ignore anything else it says. pH balance with this, P, um, electrolytes for for taste. All that all that is is code for chemicals to make you more addicted to the water. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very true. Um, yeah. Speaking of letting go of things, I don't know if I told you. I've been one month free coffee and I've been a coffee drinker. And I feel like I mentioned this free coffee thing on like the past four episodes because it's a big thing. You know, it's like when I became sober, I'm like, I'm 30 days sober. Oh my God, look at me. So it's been such a, a, a big stimulant additive in, into my diet that, and I think just like you, you know, as, as my body's becoming cleaner, spiritually, mentally, physically, I just don't need those stimulants anymore because they really feel too free. Yeah, I, I got a riff on this uh, one. So I'm really because, happy that's happening. You know, I went through the same thing. Like when I first stopped drinking alcohol, I was so excited. I would just share. I, I made it a point to always let people know that I quit drinking and how long I've quit drinking. And if I was out with, you know, especially during my travels, if I was out with people and they would talk about, hey, going to a bar, you know, I'd go to the bar, but I really made it a point. I'm like, oh, no, I don't drink, as if, like, I was above them. The same thing happened when I quit meat, and the same thing happened when I quit fish and became vegan and cut out other things like coffee and stimulants. Like, it was, it's just as exciting that you 
were able to resist something for X amount of days and then X amount of months and then X amount of years. So you do want to celebrate it by, in a way, showing off. And I did plenty of that. And I'm sure I did that with you when we first met as well. And so I okay. totally understand that. And yeah, the second part is when you do start going on a path of healing and growth, but more importantly, like healing physically, like the stuff inside you in terms of what you put in through foods and and all sorts of weird drinks, you stop needing a lot of things and coffee and stimulants and depressants. You just, the need for it isn't there anymore. And as you know, right now I'm at a point where I only really eat fresh fruits and vegetables, mainly raw and nuts, as well as lentils and rice, which are pretty much organic. I don't take stimulants. I don't take downers. I don't take all these other chemicals that I felt I needed to be able to control my mood in the moments I needed to. Now it's just like a lot more stable by just being more, I guess, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually cleaner. Yeah, you're right, Cam. We do need to celebrate and acknowledge because by by speaking about what's changing within us and how it's helping us, we actually inspire others, others to to perhaps take that first step. And it is, and it is scary, you know, the pressure of belonging, the peer pressure of either, you know, you don't drink, oh, just just take a drink, it's just one, or like, oh, just have that piece of meat, you're not gonna die, you know. It's just like this pressure to kind of yeah. like, you, you need to do this if you want to hang with us. And today, no, I don't need to, and we don't need to fight or get in argument over it. Um, I never criticize again that that was a work in practice process to you know to not criticize people let them eat act the way they want to they need to um everyone has our, the timing and um i believe there is no right or wrong way to live really it's just a choice and i'm just really grateful that um i now see the choices because i wasn't aware that i even have a choice um, so that's, that's amazing. Um, another thing, Cam, I want to touch on, and um, if you're comfortable talking about this, you know, through your journeys, um, traveling, your, your self-development, I know you, you did a lot of work and still doing with um, work on yourself, like who you are, the way you act, your relationship with, with friends, family, um, people around you, but also through your travels, um, you you've did several things for healing and, and one of them um, is the plant medicine. Are you, are you comfortable? In sure. Sure. That I mean, it was a big part of my you? journey and it was very instrumental in many ways mm -hmm. to help me get past certain steps that I probably couldn't without it. It's kind of interesting. Psychedelics weren't the plant medicines. They weren't something I was seeking or looking for when I was traveling. In many ways, when I started traveling, I kind of had to, two motivations that were running. First and foremost, I'll be honest, uh, it fed my ego. Being in a new country, in a new environment, around new people, I felt like I was doing something adventurous that others weren't doing, and I was having experiences that nobody that I knew was having. And so it kind of made me feel a bit superior, and it gave me this like rush of positive emotions of like wow i'm doing these cool things so it was like a it was definitely an ego high and the more i did the more i needed to chase that high it's almost like an addiction posting pictures on facebook of the places i was at or really cool um, viewpoints and 
people commenting how jealous they were and asking where I was, like, it felt really good. But the other part of the journey was, in a way, I was escaping from reality because given the condition I had and the thing and how intense I was and the way I was, like I said, I was practically insane. I wasn't really fit for the real world and even the corporate world. And I didn't know really what to do or where to go. And so in many ways, when I was traveling, I was just wandering. But as I was wandering, I had a mindset. I had a mindset that anything that I came across, I would try. That whatever, you know, was presented to me. So people would talk about trying, you know, drinking this kind of tea, doing this tincture, or doing this kind of ceremony, or try this meditation. And I'd pretty much try it all. Then after I had traveled through Latin America, so my first country was Colombia, then I went to Panama, Nicaragua, um, then El Salvador, Honduras, Belize, and Guatemala. I, that was pretty much all of Central America. I came back to Colombia and I started traveling around South America. But before I started the South America stint, I was at a friend's finca or farm and she was holding an ayahuasca ceremony. And ayahuasca is, you know, it's a fairly strong plant medicine that's getting a lot of attention these days. But I had heard nothing about it. And I was very intrigued by it. And the shaman who was running this ceremony he had been doing it since he was three and a half years old or three years old. And when I looked at the shaman and I spoke to him for the few minutes we did, he was so calm, so centered, so at peace. There was no like twitching or nervousness or nothing. When he spoke to you, he looked in your eyes and as if all his attention was on you. And he wasn't stuttering for his words or, you know, moving his hands or whatever when he's talking. And I was like, I want to be where he's at. But I had done these kinds, some of the, you know, psilocybin when I was younger with friends in college as recreation. And those were really intense experiences for me. So at that time, I didn't want to jump into doing it there. But I, it kind of like drew me to it because I was, because I thought to myself, like I've known people who've done a lot of drugs and I've known people who've done a lot of alcohol and stuff. And everything, um, I, anything that people have done that I've known, when they've done it too much, you could see it in, it manifests in like weird sorts of twitching, how they talk, the nervousness they have. Like you can see it's really affected it and damaged them. But how could this thing somebody be taking since he was three years old bring such like centeredness and calmness? And when you looked into the person's eyes, it looked like you're looking into the universe. So that was my first real like experience into it. Then I went into Ecuador. I was um, in the Amazon. I was in the jungles of the Amazon for a few days. And there was another shaman I met and he offered a ceremony. And again, I was like, this is even a worse place to do it because like we're in the middle of nowhere. And then I was in Peru and Peru is kind of like the hotbed for plant medicines. It's become almost touristic and everybody claims to be a shaman. And it's not a place I would recommend going. 
though this is the place that most people usually go to just because it's known for it. And where every country I went to, it was kind of like calling me. It was calling me. And then finally, when I finished my Colombia trip, I, I uh, my South America journey, I did a loop. So I went from Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, um, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, and then this, and then the Guyanas, Venezuela, and then back to Colombia. And it, it just kept like showing up for me. And then you know what I was hearing is that the ayahuasca or these medicines, you don't seek it; it seeks you. And I felt like it was like really pulling me towards it. it I felt like it really wanted me to do it. And I remember I was still too scared to do it because they're intense experiences. I had a week left in Colombia before I was going to take the next journey, journey to Asia. And I had met this guy and we were chatting. Uh, we were chatting more about business. And he didn't seem like somebody who would do ayahuasca. And he's just like, hey, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know how you feel about it, but we're going to be doing a ceremony of this medicine called yaje, which is a, is a kind of a, it's like ayahuasca, but a little different in Colombia. And it's going to be a private ceremony. So it'll be in a very safe environment and will be people that I know. Would you be interested? And I'm like, all right, if this wasn't enough sign, then I don't know what it is. And so I did it. And my first experience was extremely intense. Like, uh, for those who don't know, um, the many of the psychedelics that come from South America, uh, purging or throwing up, it's part of the process because it cleans you. It's like the purging is cleaning your body of all the toxins, as well as the, the mental trip that you take. And I purge like nobody's business. Like, I purge pretty much the whole time. Usually you purge a few times and then you trip pretty hard. I was purging so much. And I'll just say it was a really, really, it was a really, really painful experience, my first experience. And everybody who I was doing it with, they, were, they just didn't want to be in my position. Like, it was just very obvious. But what was weird was afterwards, I felt this like, I felt something that I'd never felt before. And I'm like, I could do this again. And so I canceled my trip to Asia. I uh, came back to Colombia and I spent the next three months focusing strictly on the ayahuasca. I wanted to find as many ceremonies, as many different um, shamans. <clears throat> and it was really instrumental because all the stuff that had happened to me prior with all the different foods that was messing me up, my upbringing, all that, it was locked inside me in ways that just couldn't be released. And when I was in Colombia, I had met somebody who said, oh yeah, ayahuasca, it's like uh, six months of therapy in one session. And I truly believe that. It like brings up, it take, not only it brings up, but it takes out and like removes and heals you from so much. So I did that for about a good three months, just trying to get as much as I could get in while I was there because I knew it would be difficult to get it outside of it. And that really opened the doors to other stuff that I heard. Um, when I was in, uh, you know, in Europe, there are different psychedelics as well, especially in Amsterdam, there's these things called truffles and they have that experience as well. And when I was there, I was doing that. 
And, you know, most people do it recreationally, but I was doing it for healing. I was taking it and I'm, and allowing it to crack open the unconscious and bring up all this stuff that was um, percolating inside that I didn't really know and that was really affecting my life. Then when I was in um, Asia, here's a really cool, cool story about Asia. I went to Indonesia and most people know Indonesia of Bali, but next to Bali, there's this giant um, island called Lombok. And in Lombok, a lot of Sibis Island grows over there naturally. And, and what's really cool is that in between Bali and Lombok are these three really tiny islands that not a lot of people know about. They're called the Gili Islands. And the Gili Islands, it's like there's no police there. There's no motorized vehicles. It's just a chill spot that you go to kind of escape from the world. And you can actually order mushroom shakes at a restaurant and things of that nature. So I had some experiences over there as well. But again, some people do it recreationally and for fun to party. But for me, it was more of a spiritual healing journey where I would meditate on it. But it still wasn't enough. And I had heard about something in Africa called Iboga. And, you know, I was still in a lot of pain. I was making good progress, making good ground in my healing and growth. But something was just missing. And I'm like, maybe I'll try this one in Africa. And the one in Africa I heard was like really strong and really powerful and in many ways, very dangerous. But I was in so much pain that I was willing to try anything. So once I had visited Asia and then Australia and New Zealand, I took a flight from New Zealand to Africa. And my first goal when I was in Africa was to seek out this plant. And luckily, my first flight to Africa was in South Africa. And there was somebody who was running a, a, a drug rehab who was using the African plant to help cure cocaine addicts and heroin addicts and crystal meth addicts in one dose. And so I called them up and I told them, you know, I'm not doing this for addiction. I pretty much quit all my addictions, but I'm doing it for depression and he and anxiety. And he kind of let me know what it's really what it was really for and what it could help with. But he's like, why don't you come up, come down to the city and do it? And if it doesn't work, I'll give you your money back. And it's a very expensive um, to do this. You know, it's that this the ones in all the other countries, they're not very expensive. You could do it for like $25 to $100. This one was over $1,000 to do. And honestly, Sammy, it took me into the depths of insanity and back that first night that I did it. I can't even tell you what the trip was like. It, I've never experienced anything like it. And this specific uh, psychedelic <clears throat> lasts two days. And the, you know, the first night was probably one of the most intense, frightful experiences of my life. The second day, you're still on it. You're in the passive phase of it, but it wasn't as bad and I could kind of function and talk to people and eat and whatever. Then the third day I felt amazing. <laughs> it was like, wow, I never felt anything like it in my life. It felt like, 
You know, when you were a kid, like that joyous feeling, not the kind of like happiness and joy you get from like drinking or getting something new, but that innocent joyous feeling that you had that I don't know how to describe it, but that's what it brought me back to. And so I had been doing that for quite a while and it really was helping me in my journey. And for me, everybody, for everybody, you know, different psychedelics, they connect with differently. But for me, this one from Africa was the one that really connected for me. It was my guide. It was my teacher. It was my healer. And I had done this for quite a few times to get me to the point where I could communicate better. I wasn't as anxious. I got a lot of the, a lot of the inner turmoil that was going on through me from the years of eating processed foods and all the other trauma that I experienced in my life. Wow, thank you for sharing that, Cam. That's, um, I feel like I had visuals as you were, you know, taking the plane from New Zealand to Africa, just cleaning. It's just, it's really, um, you're, you're a good storyteller, so thank you for diving into that. And um, I had the opportunity to experience several ceremonies in my life, and um, I know I will be experiencing more. And you can agree, too, I believe that those that plant medicine this that comes from literally the earth and it's literally a plant like a root that you uh, usually cook or or however the boil however the preparation goes and yeah. in our western world it's it's really illegal and i have no other reason to believe because it works so well because it helps people to break addiction to really connect with a power greater than yourself and to everything around you because we are all one the oneness you know and and to me it, it also those experiences that i've had had a tremendous um benefit to to my own growth to healing and to really the connection yeah i know i do want to talk a little bit more about that because the one in africa it's considered to be one of the most powerful psychedelics known and it literally can cure a lifelong heroin heroin addict in one dose in fact i saw with my own eyes when I first got, when I first landed in the city where he oper operated the clinic, I got picked up at the airport, and then it's so powerful that I had to actually do. Um, I, he took me to um, a clinic to get to get a physical exam to make sure that I was healthy enough to do it. So I had an EKG, and and my blood was monitored, and it said that I was fine. And then when I actually got to the place where it was going to be done, I saw, you know, various addicts there. There was a guy who was on heroin, who was a heroin addict. And I remember him going, oh, this heroin is so painful. And there was another guy who was so in deep on crystal meth that he couldn't even sit on his chair. And he had been doing it for, he had been doing so much and for so long, he was actually shooting it up. And everybody around him, his family, had given up on him. And they finally sent him to this as a last hope, but they didn't think it was going to work. There was some other guy who was on a, uh, who was addicted to a drug that they call rock. It's like a, a drug that, that is popular in South, South Africa. And, you know, a bunch of other addicts. And that night, we all took it. And I kid you not, the, after the two days, every single one of them was as calm as Hindu cows. Like the physical addiction was all gone. Like the crystal meth guy, like 
you've never the shift from what he was to what he looked like after i've never seen that big of a shit like he looked like a whole new man the guy who was saying screaming about the heroin pain like he had none of it and i was talking to the person who leads that um that that clinic about it and he's kind of the foremost authority on it uh, on the ibuga in fact a lot of the clinics around the world that use ibuga he is the person that consults as well as provides this ibuga because you can only get it from africa and he has developed the process of how to extract the alkaloid that provides that healing from the plant so it's much easier to take and he told me you know he gives speeches on it he even comes to the states about it and he told me he's like the pharmaceuticals don't want anything to do with it because it works he's like the farmers to to get over heroin has a 1% recovery um success success rate 1% and through his clinic he's got about a 30% i mean that's huge and he said the traditional route to curing heroin addicts is through methadone and methadone is a, essentially just a synthetic version of heroin that you need to take on a regular basis and he told me that it's harder for him to get people off of methadone and other pharmaceuticals than it is to get people off of like heroin isn't that crazy yeah but there is also the danger side to it because yeah. i want people to yeah. see both sides cuz it's very easy to say oh wow this works so well and 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 feel like there's no other reason but conspiracy that it's not more widely used but ayahuasca ayahuasca and even of the sub, some of the other psychedelics they can be really intense experiences and the thing about psychedelics that's very different from all other types of drugs is that the psychedelics they kind of crack open your unconscious so they kind of expose you to what's underneath and if you're not ready for what's there it can be a very intense and even a traumatic experience which is why it's important to do it in a spiritual setting or in a headspace where in a where you're prepared for it and with the ones that are more stronger like ayahuasca and the iboga i mean you know like the iboga i needed to to get my heart rate checked to make sure i was healthy enough so they have their dangers and i want people to be aware of them you know as instrumental as it those were to my healing and i really believe that they, there were certain healing that i just couldn't get without them that doesn't mean that people just go out and you know find it and do it recklessly they have to be careful and you really have to respect it otherwise um it can really hit you hard very true and i love how you mentioned you know this type of healing really calls you i did not seek it i i heard about it at the time i believe i was ready and it just spoke to me and i felt very little fear into going into that experience my first ayahuasca experience because i just trusted it i i trusted it and it it was it was very intense but very beautiful um so thanks again for for diving into the details of this and cam lastly i want to talk about your your career as a writer and i think people might be wondering so how did this guy sustain six himself years, like right? financially when you traveled for what was it close to six years 
Yeah. So talk about a little bit of right. like, your writing. So your, it began really a lot earlier than my travels. Um, so after I graduated college, a lot of the issues that I had kind of lightly alluded to about my condition was really staring me in the face. Because when you're young and you're a bit hyper erratic and somewhat out of control, it's not so much of a problem because people in many ways are almost expected. But that behavior is not welcome with so much open arms as an adult. And when I was a kid growing up with this, whatever that was going on with me, I thought I would grow out of it as an adult, but I didn't. And it was really staring me in the face as an adult. It was affecting my ability to get a job, perform well at work, um, get people to like me, and all of that stuff. So I got on a path of personal development. And I was reading a lot of different books, trying a lot of different techniques. And over the years, I, some of it was really helpful. But I felt like a lot of it wasn't helpful, not because it wasn't good, but it was because it didn't really get into the details of the challenges that you might face or how to apply it in different situations. Because at the time, there were no personal, there was no YouTube and podcasting weren't really that big and neither was self-publishing. So majority of the personal development advice came from big name experts and their content was geared towards a wide audience. And as a result, it stayed very surface level. And I felt like there was a lot more to some of these techniques that I was using and there was some, a lot more to the content than people were letting on. And I wanted to fill the gaps in personal development. So I began writing a book. And, you know, um, the first book I wrote, I wasn't very confident in because of a lot of limiting beliefs. But I didn't stop writing. I just kept, like, writing more until I got better. Then, interestingly enough, Amazon came out with the Kindle. And at the time, there was no books on the Kindle. And they desperately needed people to publish books on the Kindle. So they really opened it up to anybody to publish a book. And you didn't have to be a notable writer or an author. You can be Joe, you know, you could be Joe Schmo and submit your book and more than likely it'd get published, even if it had spelling errors and grammatical errors and stuff like that. And honestly, my, some of my earliest works were like that. I hadn't fully refined and fleshed it out, but I thought I had something worth sharing, so I put it out there. And interestingly enough, it did well. I got good reviews, people liked it. So I wrote more and I expanded it more and made it better. And because I was one of the first ones on Amazon uh, and in pretty much in the digital platform, if there was some, if there was information you were seeking on a specific topic, the topic that I wrote on, mine was the only one available. So just through sheer luck and being an early adopter, I got picked up or got some, um, some momentum going with my content without doing an, too much marketing. And that allowed me to earn a decent living. I wasn't a bestseller by any means, but it was enough to live a backpacking lifestyle. And what was interesting is that when I, when sales were doing well and I could afford more, 
my life, my travels changed. So I was doing more expensive things and spending a little bit more money. But then when there were moments when they weren't doing so well and I really had to pinch my pennies, I, you know, started going to countries that were more affordable and started really roughing it. And that was a really important thing for me because had I not been forced to rough it, especially in some of the places I was, like in Africa and in, you know, South America and, you know, hitchhiking, sleeping, sleeping under, sleeping in a tent under bridges and all of that, it would have kept me from having some of the deeper, more profound experiences and realizations. So it was really the self-publishing that allowed me to do that. And it wasn't about making a ton of money, but just to change my lifestyle so I could do what I needed to do while um, with the travels and do it comfortably, if that makes any sense. And then when I came back from the experience, you know, especially with yeah. all the psychedelic experiences, especially with traveling and all the people, I actually had some important things to say that other people weren't saying. And I spent more time writing and making my books more professional. So, I mean, and now you have to look more professional because it's not like it used to be. And now I can spend a little bit more time on marketing and things of that nature to help me as a self-published author. But for me, it did really help out that I got, I was an early adopter. And more importantly, that I just stuck with it. No matter how I felt about it, no matter what kind of negative comments I might have received, I just kept writing and getting better to the point where now my books aren't for everybody, but the ones who it is for really connects and resonates with them because what they realize is that the other stuff that other people are saying isn't working for them or it doesn't, it doesn't, the other content doesn't understand them the way that my writing does. So that's been really helpful. Wonderful. Yeah, I I had the uh, honor to read um, one of your books that you sent me through PDF. And then I believe I I got a second one, which I have not finished. But just from what I've read, you, you have a gift of writing of the simplicity. And I think that's at least for myself personally, when I started diving into the self development journey and just learning about you know, how my brain works, my, my behaviors, my parents, you have that gift of simplifying it into very understandable terms, and it reads so well. And I, I don't question, I don't need to have, you know, a Google open to look up words that I don't understand. When some writers get into this fancy language, and it's just not what regular peeps need when they're, you know, at the point, they're, they're searching for help. So I really appreciate you writing um, the way you do. And um, you're doing well so yeah thank you for for putting your service out there and um, for for speaking up your truth and to close cam um, unless you want to say any last words but also mention where people could find you if they want to reach out or maybe talk sure. to a person maybe check out i really appreciate the comment about books. my writing i will say that it takes a lot of work and effort to get it down into that simple form where you just have to read and really get it and then resonate with you at a core level. I would probably say that I spend maybe two to three times more than the average writer to write my contact just because 
I'm taking a lot of like complex ideas, especially about the human mind and our body and our emotions that really isn't easy to communicate with words and to distill it in a way that can be understood by a wider audience. Because when I got into writing, I felt like the people who needed the help the most were people who didn't really look to books or wouldn't think of books or would get lost in all the complicated jargon. And so that's why I was writing for it. And I'm glad that it's really helped or people have found it helpful the way that you had described, because that means that like all my work and the sweat and soul I put in, the sweat and soul I put in to produce these books is being recognized. So I appreciate that. And they can pretty much find me at mindlily.com. That's M-I-N-D-L-I-L-Y.com. And I have I have nearly two, a dozen books now in the area of mental performance. And right now, concentration, maintain laser sharp focus and attention for stretches of five hours or more is pretty much my deepest work that goes really deep into the mind. And you can get that at mindlily.com as well, or at most booksellers such as Amazon, Apple, and 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 um, Barnes and Nobles. And if people wanted to reach out personally, they can email me at kam at mindlily.com. So that's kam at mindlily.com. Awesome. Good. Good work, Cam. Uh, again, thank you for being here with me, for sharing your journey. Um, you brought up a lot of good memories and just a lot of um, juicy points um, for my own growth and then just reflecting on everything you've been through and um, I've been through and we're still in this. This is a lifetime journey. Hi, it's me again. I have a question for you. Would you like to be on my podcast? Do you or someone you know have a story to tell? Would you like to share your journey with me and inspire others to speak theirs? If so, feel free to contact me through my Instagram and Facebook accounts. You can find me by my name, Sammy Barks. Like the doggy. Woof! <laughs>